2: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bill Schaefer, the host of the channel for today's session. Today, we'll be talking to Todd McGowan about his new book, Emancipation After Hegel Achieving a Contradictory Revolution, which argues that an encounter with intractable contradiction lies at the heart of Hegel's philosophy, and that a proper understanding of his dialectical method could transform our understanding of the possibilities of contemporary politics. It is therefore a work that seeks to demonstrate the urgent relevance of intellectual history to problems of the present. Todd McGowan, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me.
2: Well, thank you for coming. Uh, okay. So, Todd, I wonder if you could begin this interview by telling us a bit about your background and how it led you to writing this book.
1: The first, actually, the first time I read Hegel was in graduate school, so I just had, I, I had a sense I don't know where the sense came from that Hegel was important. And so I asked my dissertation director if I could do an independent study reading Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit. And that sort of took me off on the on the path to, to Hegel. And then I, I guess from that, po- not that early, but pretty early on, I had the idea that I wanted to write a book on Hegel. And I'd say over the last maybe 10 years, I've been slowly accumulating little pieces of it, like chapters or or just little sections, and then I, about maybe three, four years ago, I decided to put it all together, and that's how the book came about.
2: Okay. So my first question is about the difference between contradiction and difference, because at a time when the celebration of difference has become mandatory in leftist theorizing, your book tries to show that the logic of contradiction uh, emerging from Hegel's dialectic, provides a much better basis for a leftist politics than an ontology of difference. And of course, as I'm sure we all know, the the joyful valorization of difference in theory is almost always accompanied by a, a total rejection of Hegel's totalizing tendencies. So I wonder if you can give us an initial impression of the difference between difference and contradiction as you understand it and the stakes of that distinction for contemporary theory
1: sure so i i guess i associate difference mostly with Deleuze, but also as you're saying it's with it goes far beyond that it goes it comes from derrida and it also sort of infiltrated just almost every aspect of contemporary theory and my idea is that difference is always a i, I even think it's almost always an ideological move away from contradiction so that it so contradiction makes apparent the way in which the significant signifying order the social order is always at odds with itself and difference differences can always uh, at least the idea of differences means that they can always coexist And peace ideally they can coexist peacefully i think that's what the philosophers of difference that's their idea that there would be a peaceful coexistence of difference and i think that for me that's exactly what's ideological about it and the contradiction shows how there's always this tension within any social order and within any structure. And that tension is, I think, the site of a radicality, like the site of where openings can exist, where we can discover what is repressed by the social order or the signifying order. And that's what difference doesn't really do. Difference always keeps, there's always, you can always add more differences and contradiction doesn't lend itself to that adding Of more and you know you mentioned hegel's the 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 critique of him as a totalizing philosopher and i think to me that's actually what's most interesting and maybe best about him because his point is it's only when we think the totality that we make apparent the contradiction so the the way in which philosophers of difference avoid the totality is to me part and parcel of their avoidance of contradiction
2: okay so um you decisively reject the uh, schema of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, which has dominated explications of Hegel's dialectic, so much so that I thought your book might have been called Against Synthesis. Um, so uh, can you tell me why you view this familiar schema as a fundamental error?
1: Yeah, I like I like that title. Maybe I should have chosen that title. That's funny. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't know why I got the idea that I would take this I guess because it's so popular that I took this idea of thesis synthesis antithesis thesis antithesis synthesis as a as a jumping off point for my I think the first chapter is basically a, a refutation of that idea and I for me first of all Hegel never uses these terms so that's a it's a pretty big thing that people this 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 this, this, this tripartite idea that's most associated with him he never he never says. And I, I think the other problem, the main problem with it for me is that it brings the idea of synthesis is, is the idea of a, of a things working out together without any disruption. And to me, the whole point of Hegel's philosophy is that things never just work out perfectly, that the the disruption is in fact part of the way in which things have to work out, that the way things don't, I mean, just to put it, maybe this is too cute, but the way things don't work out is always part of the way things do work out.
2: Right, so your, your reasons for rejecting synthesis are somewhat similar to your reasons for, for your hesitation to embrace difference in that it suggests a kind of false harmony.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. It's interesting because I think philosophers of difference would not, would, not, would themselves reject synthesis, but I think both of them, That's a really nice point I think that you made. I think both of them are doing the the same thing. I think you're right. Both of them have this kind of false harmony that is associated with them.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I suppose one of the the main points of inspiration for philosophers of difference is the work of Nietzsche, who who invoked a war of all against all. So I suppose at least at a rhetorical level, they are themselves decisively rejecting harmony. But your point would be that they don't have a logic to 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 pursue that
1: yeah i think i mean nietzsche it's funny because i think nietzsche that i that idea of a war of all against all you know and that the whole nietzschean notion of the differences but but tension within the differences i think the difference is that for hegel the idea of contradiction means that the the struggle is equally within and i, I mean i think you could say that about nietzsche too but i think nietzsche relies on some form of an external enemy and I, in a way that Hegel doesn't. And so part of one of the things I talk about in the book is the way in which the this idea of the friend-enemy distinction popularized most by Carl Schmitt uh, is something that really I, I think Hegel's decisively against because for him, there, it's always the enemy within, not the enemy, not the external enemy that's the real problem. And that's what the real struggle is always with. Right. Yeah, I had a
2: question right towards the end uh, about that friend-enemy distinction, so we'll we'll probably get to come back to that if we have time.
1: Um, Okay, good. uh,
2: Your book is full of negative-sounding words like intractability, obstacle, and failure. You seem to be suggesting that theory should be less concerned with evoking open flows or lines of flight than with recognising internal barriers and articulating the the necessity of a certain kind of failure, like my failure to say necessity there. Superficially, this, (laughs) this emphasis on limits and failure might seem more consonant with a conservative project than an emancipatory one. Can you talk about the virtues of failure in relationship to the possibility of what you call a contradictory revolution?
1: Sure, I. So part of the, one of the things, when you, one of the words that you mentioned there is obstacle, and I think for me, obstacle is a great point of, that really makes a great word to make the point that I that I, I want to make about fa- the about failure and, and and its emancipatory potential. Because obstacle, there's a there's a German word Anstoss, which is used by the philosopher who is right before Hegel, uh, Johann Wolfgang von Fichte. and Fichte's point about Anstoss is that it's both an obstacle and an impetus. So the German word has the double, the double meaning. And I and so Hegel loves words that mean one thing and they're opposite. And I think that's for me, that's what's true about about any kind about failure, limit, obstacle, that they are, these are the things that actually create an opening and and give are the sites of possibility. And it's only by seeing them that we can Cre- that, that we can actually see different open political possibilities that we otherwise wouldn't be able to see. So that, so that limit or failure isn't, ex- it's, it's also the site of something of that's, that's very generative in a way that like just a pure openness would not be generative because it's just, it's, it's, it ends up just reproducing the same or it reproduces something that's consistent with the logic of what's already there. But the, the limit or the failure is a point at which we see the we see an opening to the outside.
2: Yep. Yeah, so that would be similar to, to the way that the pheno- the, the, the phenomenology works um, in that each shape of consciousness meets a f- point of failure eventually. And it's precisely that that drives it on to, to a new, a new standard.
1: That's exactly right. Like the a new way of failing. That's what I, that's what I like about it. Like, an, and that, and that, that you know, that thinking about politics—if you think about it instead in terms of failing, then, rather than in terms of success—I think it all of a sudden opens up a whole other kind of way of thinking, and that—and it gets out of what I see as the, the capitalist trap, which is constantly trying to find a looking to the, some better tomorrow that will that will that will deliver us from. Any kind of suffering or all dissatisfaction, and I think Hegel's philosophy is pretty interesting because for the right for the reason that it, it shows us how the dissatisfaction is in some way constitutive of our being, and that we have to some way in some way reconcile ourselves to that. And if we don't, we end up creating I don't know if I maybe we'd call it an excess dissatisfaction if you keep trying to get this perfect satisfaction. So I think failure is a way, like focusing on the limit or the failure, is a way to. To avoid the excess dissatisfaction that comes from not doing that.
2: So there's a kind of implied anti utopianism, uh, which would be like a caveat against a certain kind of violence.
1: I think that's right. I think that, uh, you know, Hegel was very critical of the Reign of Terror in the French, even though he was very much in favor of the French Revolution, he was also very critical of the Reign of Terror. And I think his diagnosis is that it, it, it's the very utopian dimension of it. That creates the violence, and I think that that's right. I think that, you know, of all the thinkers in the history of, of philosophy or in the the intellectual history, I think Hegel's maybe the most anti-utopian. That for him, it's utopian thinking is really the path to disaster.
2: Yeah, and which is a kind of paradox in that we think of him as being the philosopher almost seems to identify himself with the absolute, which some would take as the attainment of a kind of utopia. But you're arguing that's exactly what he rejects.
1: Exactly what he rejects, right, that the absolute is instead the absolute confrontation with an intractable limit. So, I mean, he even says that in the, at the end of the phenomenology, the absolute knowing section, he says that that philosophy or spirit is what what he calls thinking or or thought spirit knows itself and it knows its limit. So, so even in the absolute knowing section, he, he explicitly says that absolute knowing means knowing a limit, not surpassing all limits into some utopia of thought or utopia of, or social utopia.
2: Right. So we'll be coming back to the, to the limit later when I ask you a question about Hegel's relationship to Kant. But my next question is about perhaps surprisingly to some listeners about uh, love. So, um, you argue that the notion of love is central to the development of Hegel's philosophy and that it was never really abandoned by him but rather ends up being, as as it were, transubstantiated and incorporated into his logic of contradiction. And in perhaps the most potentially scandalous note of your book, you claim that Hegel's particular way of declaring that God is dead, as opposed to Nietzsche's much more famous version of that, uh, demonstrates the singularity and superiority of Christianity as a religion of love in relationship to other religion religions. Can you talk a little bit about the role of love in Hegel's thought and how it leads you to defend what some might view as a form of Christian supremacy?
1: Yeah, I uh, it, I do have a form of Christian. I mean, you know, supremacy. God, I, I wouldn't have said that, but I do I do think that Christianity has a kind of insight that other religions don't. But I think other religions can. I don't think it precludes them. I think that there's a way in which they can, you know, they can, they can with a little hint from Christianity can come to the same point. But I back to the idea of love. I think that love, I think I say this in the book that loves the point at which Hegel breaks from Kant and this idea. So he, in his early life up until about uh, 1800, he was, he, his, and morally or ethically, he was a Kantian, and there's this moment where he writes these little short things about love, and he, he, and and for him, love is the thing that break allows him to break from Kant and the idea of Kantian duty, and he, and an ethic of love, for Hegel means seeing oneself in absolute otherness, and that for him is some is an ethic that trumps the Kantian ethic of duty, and then that's also how he identifies the concept later, that the concept in the science of logic is precisely what what only becomes what it is through its transition or movement into absolute otherness. So I think there's a nice, interesting way in which love, I like the way you said that, becomes transubstantiated into the concept. I think that's exactly how I would put it.
2: Okay, and that provides a good segue to my next question, which is about Kant.
1: Hegel described his
2: philosophy as absolute idealism and rejected any fixed division between thought and things in themselves. This stands in stark contrast to Kant's call to limit the exercise of reason to the sphere of experience, a necessity demonstrated to his satisfaction by by certain encounters with unavoidable contradiction at the very limits of reason and the limits of time and space. For many, this refusal to acknowledge the point at, re- at which reason can go no further would mark Hegel's thought as a regression to a form of pre-critical and pre Kantian rationalism. You insist, however, that Hegel goes decisively beyond Kant in a completely unparalleled and unprecedented sense. Can you tell us how a philosophy that invokes the absolute can nonetheless be construed as resolutely post Kantian?
1: Sure, uh, and that's a good Uh, summary I think of what the standard critique of Hegel is and he has this great line where he says only way to understand a limit is to always be beyond to also be beyond the limit so his, his his idea is that Kant is kind of cheating when he tries to identify the limits of reason because the only way to the only way to identify those limits is to already in some way have have be beyond them and, and, and see them from the other side. And so Hegel's point is that not that there are no limits, but that we can identify the limits. And by identifying the limits, we can think that's, that's what he thinks thinking absolutely is. And so part of what he does, and I think this is the, the real, the part of the, I, I said before that the turn from Kant to Hegel is a turn on love and that's true for his ethical and practical philosophy but in terms of his theoretical philosophy it's really on this idea of the limit that Hegel moves beyond Kant and and what he does is he looks at what Kant sees as the absolute what he calls antinomies of pure reason and Hegel identifies these as the the structure the what the the problems that reason runs into not just that reason runs into but that actual being itself runs into and so his his idea is that if reason is able to apprehend these things, there must be some way in which the, these are ontological structures already. That that there has to be some kind of antinomy, contradiction, some problem in being itself for in order for us to be able to apprehend it. And so that's why he doesn't think that he doesn't think that we can at that limit of the not being able to think the thing in itself. His idea is that well, our the way that we think has to be impacted by the thing in itself. And so understanding, looking, moving from back from thought to the thing in itself is, Hegel thinks, possible precisely because of this impact of the thing in itself on thought. That you can't, how could it be that the way things are in themselves has no impact on the way that we think? Hegel thinks, of course it has to have an impact and we can diagnose that through what we're able to think and what we're not able to think.
2: So in a sense, the point at which Kant Kant would have us stop thinking is exactly the point at which Hegel starts, which would be at the limit.
1: That's really well put. Yeah, I totally, I think that's exactly right.
2: Okay, Um, so my next question is about the subject. So you, inf- you affirm the importance of the Hegelian proposition that substance is subject, and at the same time, although the name of Lacan is mentioned very sparingly in this particular book, it is clear that you are also constantly engaged as a theorist with the Lacanian problem of the subject. Here again you seem to deliberately swim against the tide of contemporary theory as it has been formulated in the wake of post-structuralism which tends to proudly repudiate or bypass the concept of the subject. Can you tell us how you believe the concept of the subject has been misconstrued by so many and why it should be reinstalled as a central reference point for contemporary theory?
1: Yeah, so I think that the the way that I'm uncomfortable with the term post-structuralism because that the Thinkers that are post-structuralists never use that term themselves, but I understand what it refers to. Um, I, I get that. I agree. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So, so, but those thinkers, so, so, Derrida, Deleuze, Foucault, let's say, um, the the rejection of subject, I think, is a rejection of the sub subject of mastery. That is a subject that imposes itself on the world. And I, you know, fair enough. I think that we should reject that for sure. But I, but the point is that. And this is Hegel's point that there's always two sides to subjectivity. That there, yeah, okay. There's this subject of mastery that's trying to impose itself on the world, but there's also the subject that's split. So there's a that, that is, and, and you referenced Lacan. So the split for Lacan would be the split between the subject of the of the sorry the subject of the enunciation and the subject of the statement. That is i who am speaking and then the i who if i say i am speaking the i of that's in the sentence so the difference between those or, or you could even think the difference between the unconscious and consciousness and in, within subjectivity like that kind of split that for psychoanalysis is theorized that way for hegel it's theorized as the difference between the subject that has mastery over the world and then this subject that's imposed upon and so, and, and that I, I that idea that the way he says it the idea that the substance is subject is that everything that we think of as substantial is always split so that's the idea that every everything that we would take as an authority can't really be an authority so that's what he I, in a way i think that's what he means by substance is substance is an authority substance is something that we think is solid ground and if you say substance is subject you mean what you mean by that is that everything that would be solid ground is actually split and divided against itself, which means you can't rely on that. You can't. You have to call that into question as well. So I think there's a way in which substance is subject or subject is a is a license to continually questioning. And I think the rejection of subjectivity and it fits in with the philosophy of difference. I, I think, and that and there's a way in which that doesn't allow the same kind of questioning because it doesn't get at this fundamental divide within us. And I think that's what Hegel's getting at, that we have to accept this divide within us and this does a divide within any authority that we come in contact with.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: Okay, and you provided another nice link to my next question by mentioning the unconscious. So um, to take the discussion of the subject a little further, You argue that Freud, in a sense, and I hope I'm not overstating this, completes the dialectic, even if he barely ever engaged with Hegelian philosophy, by thinking the one thought that Hegel came, as it were, too early to think, which is the thought of the unconscious. Um, One thing that occurs to me that some readers might wonder is, are not readers, listeners, uh, isn't this kind of begging the question? Um, Why wouldn't the intrinsic dynamic of the dialectic itself lead Hegel to discover the unconscious before Freud? And on the other hand, in a kind of reverse maneuver, you also claim that Hegel's philosophy demonstrates that Freud's couch and the talking cure need not be the only royal road to an adequate theory of the subject, and that the exercise of dialectical reason by a philosopher in an armchair can also provide a viable pathway. And this might seem like a proposal that would uh, distress psychoanalysts. So can you talk a little bit about Hegel's own failure to articulate the concept of the unconscious and the way you link the dialectic to Freud and Lacan?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I feel like, why, yeah, why doesn't, he un, why doesn't he himself discover the unconscious? So Schelling uses the term. And so it could be that his rivalry with Schelling makes him not able to discover it. But of course the, the problem is that the, the Freudian unconscious is something far from the, from Schelling's unconscious. And I, I think it is true that Freud, if he wasn't listening to other people would not have discovered the unconscious. And, and so I feel like I, I, you you kind of caught me in a little thing where I I do think that, that Hegel moves beyond Freud in the sense that he does say, he does point out how we can uncover the unconscious within our own thinking. But the fact that he couldn't discover it is is crucial, I think. That that he couldn't discover it because it requires always another person that, that and this I think is true in a very commonsensical way. Like other people, when we're talking to them, they hear our slip and they see our unco- or they hear our unconscious, or they they just look at us in the way that we talk and they, they see our gestures and, and, and our unconscious makes it manifest itself in our, in these interactions. And when, when Freud's listening to patients, it becomes overtly manifest and also overtly manifested and also that he's paying attention to dreams. And that's just something Hegel for I think because he shares the prejudices of a lot of philosophers that he didn't, he thought he didn't think anything about dreams. And I think it's probably, that's probably where, I mean, Freud said that dreams were the Royal road to the unconscious. And it's probably true that if he wasn't thinking about dreams, he wouldn't have had the idea of the unconscious. And so I think Hegel, just because he had the, philo- the philosopher's prejudice, I don't think he could come up with it. But it is a good question. Like, why why didn't he discover it? And I, I guess that's my best answer, is that he had the philosopher's prejudice, and he wasn't interacting with other people in the way Freud was, which created a limit for what he could uncover.
2: Okay. Um Okay, my next question is about Marxism and your relationship to it. So Marx famously announced the need to invert Hegel in order to arrive at dialectical materialism, um, although my understanding is that phrase was used much more eagerly by Engels than Hegel. But as far as I know, even Slavoj Žižek, who, whose precedent you acknowledge as crucially making your own work possible, continues to describe himself as both a Marxist and a materialist, even if with increasing reservations. Can you tell us a little about your own apparent reluctance to identify with any form of Marxism, no matter how, no matter how revised and your apparent readiness to defend absolute idealism from a leftist point of view?
1: Sure. This is actually, I had a discussion with Slavoj about right after my book came out about this very question and about why, about why he insists on still calling himself a Marxist. And you know, his point was, I think it's a good point. His point was, uh, you know, Hegel doesn't have any of the analysis of capital that Marx does. And that's just true. So that's something. So I, and I do share some of Marx's analysis of capital. I think it's right. I just not enough that I would call myself a Marxist. And I, I think it, it comes down to maybe this question of materialism versus idealism. And I feel like, uh, that, that for Hegel, it's, it, his notion of absolute idealism doesn't mean material doesn't matter. And in fact, Slavoj calls him, his book on Hegel called Less Than Nothing, uh, the subtitle of it mentions the shadow of of dialectical materialism. So he sees Hegel as actually tries to reread him as a dialectical materialist. But I guess for me, what Hegel means by absolute idealism is that we can't, that the relationship between ideas and matter is always dialectical. So the notion that you could say one is, has priority over the other for him doesn't make any sense. And I think that's that I, I agree with that. I think that that doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to, to insist on being a materialist. I don't think because one of the way, one of the things that Hegel shows is the power of ideas to change history. And interestingly, I think Marx actually shows that too, right? Like his, the whole, and In some way, the whole Marxist project is an attempt to inject ideas into the material movement of history in order to change it. Like if they, if Marx didn't think that ideas couldn't change history, he wouldn't have he wouldn't have written. So I, I feel like even I guess my claim would be even Marx isn't that always totally a materialist. But why I don't identify with Marxism is because I think that Marx has this idea of healing that I don't think Hegel has that he he his idea of getting out of history, or I think he puts it like we could get out of prehistory and into actual history. But that notion for him is a history without any more contradiction. And to me, that's a really dangerous idea that if we think we can get out of contradiction, that's what paves the way to any kind of, or any kind of violence, but especially the worst kind of violence. Like I want to get rid of the thing that's causing the contradiction and that can be a bunch of people too, and I think that's what that's what happened in the history of Marxism, and I think it's attributable to his theoretical, what I would call his theoretical error.
2: So you as you have a license to murder in order to bring about the the utopia again. So it's it's, it's again it's a it's a note of anti utopianism.
1: Right. I think it's and you know what I mean. Marlo Ponti even has this. It's a it's a very fascinating book called Humanism and Terror, in which he says you probably know it, and in which he says, "Look, because of what Stalin's going to produce, the de- you know, the, the the Gulag is justified, and the show trials are justified." So, I, and I I don't disagree with that. Like, if you really thought we could overcome contradiction. Why not, I mean, like okay, it costs like whatever a few thousand hundred thousand lives but but in but it, it'll create a world in which life is so much better for those people, then maybe okay, but so I think but if you don't think that's possible, which I don't think is possible, then all of a sudden that license is revoked
2: yes, um another thing that occurred to me while listening to you is that in a sense, absolute idealism could be said to achieve exactly what. Philosophers of difference set out to achieve, which is to go beyond representation because the the idea in Hegel seems to be that we should consider ideas themselves as real, not merely in a relationship of representation to the world or to the things in themselves, but in, in a kind of imminent relationship
1: yeah, I think that's right that, that well there's a way in which representation goes beyond itself right like that's I think that's the i mean that's the that that's the idea. The idea of the Hegelian idea. That's the, the, he has the term idea. And I think the idea is the point at which representation transcends itself or sublates itself.
2: Yep. Okay. So the next question is about the master and slave dialectic and also unhappy consciousness. So the most frequently cited section of the phenomenology of spirit is almost certainly the master and slave dialectic. You argue that this emphasis has been massively overplayed, perhaps done to death and instead choose to focus attention on the later figure of the unhappy consciousness. Can you tell us how you account for the repeated overemphasis, and why you seem to find Hegel's analysis of the unhappy consciousness so much more provocative and rewarding?
1: Yeah, why has it happened? I I guess it's the influence of Alexander Kozhev, for sure. Uh, The French, Russian-French philosopher who gave a Course on Hegel in the 1930s, attended by Lacan, Merleau-Ponty, and numerous other people, and Kojève's really shaped subsequent thinking about Hegel for a long time, and and he takes the master-slave dialectic as his point of departure. And I think it appealed to people. It appealed to Marx. I think it appealed to people, in part because it's so well written. I think it's one of the points at which Hegel really. He he, kind of transcends himself. He's usually not the greatest writer, and it's one of these. It's it's a great story he tells. It's almost like he's a he's a novelist or a short story. It's to be a short story, I guess. He's he's telling this story about these two figures struggling against each other. So I almost think it's there's an aesthetic reason for it. The reason people have the aesthetic reason for why people have have glommed onto it to such an extent. But the other reason is because. I think people like the idea of recognition, and I think they get from the master-slave dialectic the idea that mutual recognition is possible. That is that if we, that the master and slave can't achieve mutual recognition, they're always in this point of, of failure of recognition. Note, like the slave recognizes the master, but the slave, because the slave is a slave, isn't worthy of recognizing the master. So there's all, there's this constant mismatch. But, people get from that, the idea that if, okay, they fail to recognize each other because they're not mutual. And thus Hegel's idea by, you know, implicitly is mutual recognition is the way to go ethically, politically, et cetera. And and so I think that's, people like that idea. And I almost think they've written that idea back onto Hegel and they've seen in master-slave dialectic a way to justify that in terms of his philosophy, but I think is not really there. And I think this idea that a, a philosophy of like making Hegel into a philosopher of recognition, I find just a bizarre thing, but that's the way that he's, you know, especially here in America, that's one of the ways, the central ways in which he's read. So they, he gets, he gets transposed and it, it goes on all sides of the philosophical dial. So Judith Butler thinks of him that way. Robert Pippin thinks of him that way. So there's a kind of, there's a way in which these Disparate figures come together around the idea of recognition, and I think that's the, that's the key thing about why master-slave dialectic functions so centrally.
2: Okay, and oh, I, you instead seem to really enjoy the figure of the unhappy consciousness, so yeah. perhaps you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I do. I, I I like that figure, except I mean, obviously, the fig, the problem with the figure of the unhappy consciousness is that it 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 doesn't recognize that its unhappiness is is also its happiness, and so I guess that would be my only way of twisting that figure. I do like that figure because I think that the the understanding the way in which dissatisfaction is central to any satisfaction that's the to me that's the Hegelian project much more than the master slave dialectic. So you're right. I do I feel like the movement. Out of that. So, master slave dialectic is the beginning of that section on, not the exact beginning, but toward the beginning of the section on self consciousness. Then it goes through stoicism, skepticism, and relies on unhappy consciousness. And I think it's one truth about Hegel is that whatever's farther along in the book is always more of what he thinks. It's an interesting little key to reading Hegel. Like, if you want to understand what he really thinks, get to the end. But if you want to understand, is he more invested in a position? Is it further along in the book than if he's more invested in it?
2: Yep. Uh, while I was listening, I was just thinking that f- for me, there are actually many quite beautiful passages in the phenomenology that, and and passages that ring true at, a, at an emotional level, which is you're know, not how people normally think about Hegel. Things like the beautiful soul and and the pure heart and the, all these figures that that evoke what it, in a sense, what it feels like to be caught up in something where you are divided against yourself, which is, well, to use an unfortunate word, something that I recognize.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it's a great point. I love, I agree with you. These are great figures and you know that like even the name of them, like Beautiful Soul seems like, like how did he think of that? It's just like such an incredible idea and I, and I think it really gets at something that that is true to the way one of the forms that our subjectivity takes. And and oftentimes I, like you, I kind of recognize myself in a lot of these figures, especially beautiful souls hard. It's so hard to avoid because the, you know, the, the world, (laughs) certain aspects of the world are in such terrible shape. It's really easy to become the beautiful soul and, and think like, just complain about the world and, and and not really recognize oneself in it and not recognize the uh, the way i think this is what the beautiful soul doesn't do not recognize the way in which one's complaints are actually help, helping to constitute the very thing that one is complaining about
2: so that sounds a bit like um the logic of hysteria in freud
1: yeah i think it's that's i think that's right i think that, you know it's funny you said before that freud you know he mentions hegel that he doesn't talk about hegel he mentions him twice both times clearly he just in reference to other thinkers, and it's clear he never really read him. No, never really read him. He never read him at all. And I think that but if he did, I wonder if he would have seen these figures that he's identifying in neurotic and and other kinds of disorders, perverse disorders. I wonder if he would have seen them identified in in the Hegelian dialectic. I I tend to think that he he would have.
2: Okay. Um, Okay, so my next question is about... The, about the uh, usual idea of Hegel's work and the phenomenology and other works as being progressive, as leading to a kind of ascent. Okay, so uh, you continually stress what you view as the progressive political implications of Hegel's thought, but you severely qualify the usual image of the movement of his dialectic as a pro- pro- progressive one that ascends irreversibly to the su- supposed security of absolute knowledge how would you account for the apparent disparity between the usual description of Hegel's thought and your own explication? Isn't it true that Hegel himself consistently insists that we must follow the full development of the dialectic to reach the absolute?
1: Yeah, he does insist on that. And I guess for me, what I would say is that it's not progressive. And I think I, I think I talk about politics as I think he's a, Philosopher of emancipation, but I don't think I ever use the word progressive because I think, I guess for me, Hegel is not that that his idea of what emancipation is means discovering something that's already that's already present that can't that doesn't we're not we're not creating something that is going to help us get out of something like I think progress is it's, it's it's tied to the idea that we can get out of something and I think Hegel wants to say we can't really get out of the things that we, that are the ultimate problems of our existence are things that we can't get out of. And that the only solution is to reconcile ourselves to them. And so I guess that for me, that's the key that, that it's not, it's not, even though, even though the, I think of the politics as emancipatory and leftist, I don't think of it as progressive. I think of it as really discovering something that's intractable and Finding a way to reconcile ourselves to it, and that in some way all the all the horrors that we've seen politically are the result of not reconciling ourselves to what I, I call the intractability of contradiction. But I think that's the that's the key for me. That that Hegel's not about progressing, and and I you know why is that? I think that's the misunderstanding, and I think you know it, does he himself kind of lead us in that direction? Maybe, but I think you know, really, if you look at the, the, the way his thought works itself out, it, it's never like the absolute is never this. It's never a progress toward the absolute. It's all because the absolute has to be read retroactively. So we're always he even says this, that we're always at the point of the absolute. And it's not something to be attained in the sense that we're going forward. It's something to be attained in a kind of recognition and thus a rewriting or a reconceiving of, of where we are.
2: Okay, and so my next um, question is about probably the aspect of Hegel that I find hardest to keep in my own head consistently, like it's the sort of thing that I can understand and then suddenly seem not to understand anymore, which is the relationship between the singular and the universal. Um, So the one note sounded in your explication that seems to resonate strongly with themes of other forms of contemporary theory is that of the singular. Um, But that moment of possible harmony seems to be quickly undermined by your insistence that the movement of the dialectic can only be coherently thought in relationship to universality, which is a notion which has been widely denounced as oppressive and presumptuous and badly need of dismantling. And as I said, this strikes me as the one argument that most readers Listeners, sorry, and myself will find the hardest to get their heads around. Can you help us understand the relationship between particularity, singularity, and universality in Hegel?
1: Sure. So, I for me, and I think this is true for Hegel, that universality is the thing that lifts us up out of our particularity. So we're we exist in, we're born into, we're determined into a, a, a particularity, whatever you know our our whatever our identity is, our, you know, our maleness, our ethnic identity, our, our career identity, all these things that define us as particulars, that universality for him is the thing that allows us to get purchased on that particularity and lifts us out of it. And it gives us a new, a different perspective on it. Like I can, if, if the universal is something like equality or freedom, I can, I can look, I can relate to myself and my particularity in a different way because of that universality. I can think of it differently. And that singularity then is the way that I relate back to my particularity because of universality. So it's always going to be different for everyone. So I think that's where it's, that's where universality is this freeing that then allows me to relate back to my particularity. So I I don't rather than just feeling like, oh, I am a man, I, I can relate to my maleness like, oh, I don't really feel like I am that maleness. I feel like I want to reject it totally. And then that would be, that would constitute me as singular. So I think that's the, to me, that's the, that's the, I guess, trick of universality, that it, it lifts us up out of our particularity, and then it allows us to relate back to it in a way that defines us as singular.
2: So in a sense, what's universal is, is this experience of the failure of identity
1: yeah, I think that's right. And, and I think that out of that experience of failure, I think we can derive all the like the classic universals of the French Revolution, freedom, equality and solidarity. That those things are all like they're all they all have their origin in failure, in the failure. Like we're free because any authority always is at odds with itself and fails and we're all equal in that failure and, and we're all together in that failure. So I think those, you know, those cl- those not traditional, those, those classic universals of the French Revolution are tied to the failure of subjectivity, or the failure of subjectivity and the failure of, of any substantial authority.
2: So it's interesting that you mentioned freedom because another thing that occurs to me is that um, many commentators of Hegel have seen his philosophy as as antagonistic to freedom. Like Karl, Popper, Karl Popper, for example, who denounced him as an enemy of the open society and even more uh sympathetic commentators like odorno and so on uh, seem to think that there is something intrinsically totalitarian or oppressive or restrictive about hegel and his embrace of the absolute so i'd be interested if you could tell us a little bit more about your understanding of freedom from an Hegelian point of view
1: yeah, so I, I obviously I think those two are completely wrong, and I, I I take them both up a little bit in in the book, and I, I, I for me freedom from a Hegelian point of view is precisely that ability to be oneself in absolute otherness, so that so that you you don't you in a way it's a ability to lose oneself that you you're, you're with you're you are once you are yourself only when you're in this you can be yourself in what's absolutely other. And so you're not confined to what your identity is. So it's a little bit tied to this, what I was talking about earlier about universality, that it's a, that freedom for Hegel is breaking out of identity. It's getting out of what, my society or what my birth has made me. And in in that way, I think he's still connected to the Kantian idea of freedom because for Kant, it's the moral law that allows us to break out in that way. It's just for Hegel. It's not necessarily the moral law. It's our ability. I would say it's something like our ability to love that makes us free or our ability to grasp our own failure, which I think is, is consonant with our ability to love.
2: Okay. And so, My next question, which will probably be my last, or no, rather the second last, um, is an attempt to bring Hegel into the present. Uh, Your book repeatedly made me think of one very prominent name in contemporary politics, and that name was Donald Trump. I thought of it while reading about Hegel's refusal of the friend-enemy opposition, about the implied lesson of Freud's theory of death drive, that the unconscious causes subjects to work against their own good, and in your argument that Hegel's work exposes the rhetoric of the rebel as a form of conformism. All these themes seem to converge in one way or another in the last few days in your president's sudden declaration of war against what he apparently considers a foreign virus. Perhaps we could wind up the interview with some thoughts on how the work of Hegel might equip activists and theorists responding to the age of Trump shock.
1: Yeah, it's good. I think that Trump is the great anti-Hegelian figure for the reasons that you just pointed out. And he—I mean he's in love with the friend-enemy distinction. He even has to try to create it out of a virus, which clearly has no enemy. And i I, I think the virus is itself a Hegelian phenomenon because it's a point at which life is... Attacking life when life is at odds with itself, and I was thinking about I was talking to some friends of mine about this, and, and it's interesting that a, a war or a, an external a conflict with enemies, and actual people is is always is always good ground for the right and for conservatism. Whereas the, the interaction with a natural disaster or with with a, a plague is always, a, I think, a, a, a great opportunity for the left. That we're on in on leftist terms, and this is why. You wouldn't notice, but here in America, Fox News has been so reluctant to even credit that the virus is actual. They just want to say it's the flu. It's nothing big. It's don't worry about it. Keep going to keep going on cruises, et cetera, because they understand, I think, implicitly that the virus is bad news for them. That it's it really it's good. It's good news for someone like Bernie Sanders. I mean, it happened too late for him, I think, but it's good news for that kind of that kind of uh, idea of what politics means. And I think it does. Also show the Hegelian nature of even being itself, because life itself—that life isn't doesn't just go along. That there, there are these points at which it it destroys itself, and the and the virus is a is an interesting case of that. Unfortunately, I have a, a chronic lung ailment, so it would be if the if the virus gets me, it will really be life destroying itself. So it's not. I like the idea theoretically, but I'm hoping that. Practically, I won't have to have to realize that.
2: Well, I hope I hope that's the case too. <laughs> um, okay, so I suppose we have taken enough of your time. I'm, I'm supposed to end by asking you what you are working on now.
1: Okay, so we talked about universality. I, it's interesting that I'm working on a book called "Universality and Identity Politics." So I'm 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 really fleshing out, in some way, fleshing out the idea of universality from Hegel, giving it a slightly Different twist, but it's really, it's really, it was really my work with in this book, in emancipation after Hegel that got me thinking about this and allow got me to think about the problems with identity politics and also how that's thrown around as an attack on the left against things that aren't which which get attacked as identity politics, which I think actually are universalist projects in disguise. So part of the book is uncovering the universal where we wouldn't see it and and then the other part of it is just i claiming universality as itself a leftist project so the idea is that the left is always universalist and the right or conservatism is always particularist and this is really the fundamental struggle that's going on and i think you know today we see it right now like the right's response to the virus is particularist like give money to certain people and and not not think about the whole and, and the left's response is, is at least impressively has been a universalist
2: well in particular give a trillion dollars to the stock market
1: yeah 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 exactly exactly completely particularist response
2: yep okay well i think we've reached the end of this interview which i enjoyed immensely and thank you very much for your time todd mcgowan
1: oh bill thank you so much i really enjoyed it